You can turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. I'm glad that Jeff gave an update on the mission trip because I thought I was going to have to stand up here and do it. Um, Well, I did think when I heard him start to say, we've got a silver, I thought it was going to be a crack about my hair, but it wasn't. Just the roof. Um, Yeah, we, um, that was good. We're all exhausted. Um, It was good work, hard work. I hope it's okay for me to say this, but I think we're planning to give a fuller report uh, at a later date, too, um, probably on a Sunday night. And so if that wasn't enough for you, then uh, we'll we'll advertise that date coming up at a later time. Not tonight, but definitely a, a different week so you can hear more about it. Uh, let, me, um, let me pray for us, and we will read from 2 Kings chapter 4. <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we... Um, Come before you this morning as uh, as uh, mortal people. Some of us more than others, uh, feeling that the the spirit is willing, but the the flesh is weak. Uh, many of us are tired. Many of us are um, just overwhelmed with life. Many of us are um, dragged down by temptation and sin. And so we pray, Lord, that you would um, strengthen our flesh, just as we come to your word, strengthen us to hear you and to receive uh, what you have to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My voice might crack a little this morning. Some of those high notes were a little hard this morning in the songs. Uh, let's, uh, let's read 2 Kings chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived. And she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat uh, on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door behind him and went out. 
And she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. She said, All is well. And she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand, and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. And when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. And he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. Amen. Well, this is one of those, um, this is one of those weeks where God takes uh, the message and whacks it across my own head uh, before I get the chance to preach it. Uh, and I could, well, I could tell probably a dozen stories from the mission trip this week. Uh, but that's not, not actually what I'm talking about. Um, so I've been gone for, for a week. Um, so I haven't seen most of you uh, in about a week and a half. And um, about a week and a half ago, if you had kept up with the, the prayer chain emails, uh, you know that uh, me and my wife were going through the citizenship process. <sighs> my lips are not working very fast today. Uh, the citizenship process. Um, and just first of all, I want to thank, thank everyone for the, the prayers and the... <laughs> Uh, it's been a long process. Uh, so thank you for your prayers and your cards. It's been a very long week with little sleep. Um, 
Uh, so, uh, but it's been, it's been good. We thank you for all of it. Um, we did not, uh, it was kind of a flurry on the, the nights and the day of that citizenship interview. Um, definitely did not go, uh, as planned. We had planned it all out. Uh, we had planned to get there nice and early, uh, the night before, some some of you I told the story to already. Some of you heard it. Most of you haven't. Uh, but just as we were pulling into downtown Detroit, um, I get this big flashing red message on our car that the car is overheating and pull over immediately, and um, or you're in grave danger or something like that. Um, so we pulled over. Uh, we're stuck on the side of the streets. Um, not even in a parking spot. Uh, the tow truck wasn't going to get there until 3 a.m. Uh, the car, eventually, the next day, once we got it to a mechanic, said it was going to be a couple weeks before he would get to it. And this is all happening, like, I mean, hours before one of the biggest meetings of our lives, biggest days of our lives. Uh, and yet, mixed in with all that bad stuff, it's just so many good things, um, which is tough to see in the moment. But, you know, going from, from smaller to bigger, uh, in a sense, um, we found we got a parking spot on the streets kind of miraculously. We were able to work our, our car into that. So we weren't worried about getting towed or anything. Uh, my father-in-law happened to be working late in Detroit that day. Uh-huh. So he was able to give us a ride all the way back here so we could take another car back down. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course, Anita passed her exams and her tests um, by the grace of God, and uh, we eventually did take the car in, and it literally took minutes to fix, and was super cheap, and was was pretty much nothing. Uh, so we got home on Thursday afternoon, and we just kind of were sitting at home, and we were just kind of like, "What happened? <laughs> what was that? Are you kidding me?" Um, a lot of mixed feelings. Obviously, we're, we, were, we were so happy. We were very relieved. And we were also just very confused um, and a little bit frustrated. Um, because, I mean, what, what most of you don't know is that four years ago, we had her, her green card interview, and the exact same thing happened. We were going to drive. We were living in Mississippi. We'd drive three hours south to New Orleans. Um, we were going to go down there the night before, right, get there nice and early, and we blew a tire on the highway. We're like, what is happening? <laughs> so the second time around, it feels even worse. Um, and obviously, that was, you know, good news again. Uh, obviously, she ended up passing that one as well. Um, we, we got there and everything, got back. Uh, you know, it wasn't an expensive fix or anything like that. Um, but that... It's just often how God works in Christians' lives. The mix of the good and the bad. And that's how he works with this Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 4. The good is mixed with a lot of bad. The bad is often mixed with at least some silver linings. And it can be a very confusing and precarious and kind of shaky way to live as a Christian. All right, so we've all, probably most of us have received some sort of brand new gift at some point, and minutes, hours later, it breaks. And what do you do? 
Um, you start a brand new job, you get a promotion, and the next day your car breaks down. You miss your first day of work. You have a brand new charge. You can't afford to miss the day of work. Um, and here you are. Um, the couple that struggles with fertility their entire lives finally get pregnant and just a few weeks later miscarry. Why does God raise us up to such heights just to seemingly pull us back down? Why does he do that? Second Kings 4 gives us a, a lesson, a lot of lessons in God's providence. And if providence is a new word to you, um, it's a word that gets defined in our, in our catechism, uh, the Westminster Catechism, and it says that God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. He governs all of his creatures and everything that they do in the most holy, wise, and powerful way possible. And it's easy to see with the good things when we're lifted up to high, high heights. But is the car breaking down? Is the miscarriage, is that really part of God's providence? Can you really say that's part of God's goodness? Is that really the most wise and holy way he could have governed the situation? And if we believe that God is, is sovereign, if we believe that God is good, then the answer is yes. We may not understand it, but yes, that is the most holy and wise way he could have governed. And so how are we supposed to respond, especially to God's hard providences, when he does seem to pull you back down? And uh, we sung it earlier, and, and we can say with, with Job, that song comes from Job chapter 1, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be his name. That's our response to God's providence. And so that's how we're going to look at, at this text um, this morning in Second Kings chapter 4. Now the Lord first gives something very great to the Shunammite woman. Um, we, we, we don't know much about this Shunammite woman. We know some, but not a lot. lot. Uh, Shunam is a city in Israel, probably. It, it's near the Sea of Galilee. And so if you know your, your map from the back of your Bible, you've got a picture of Israel. It's kind of up in the northeast, um, probably in the tribe of Issachar. Um, again, near the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we know that this woman, uh, the ESV calls her wealthy in verse 8. Um, that is, that's the ESV's translation of just, just simply the word great, which really stresses you know, not, not just her wealth, but also her social standing, her, her general importance. She's a woman of, of great standing. Uh, most importantly, she's a follower of the Lord who seeks out the Lord's prophet and is hospitable to him. You see, she, she, she urges him to come stay at her house, right? He's not passing by. He's not the one who initiates. She's the one that finds him. And the idea is that she she grabs onto him and will not let him go until he's eaten some food. It's a pretty good host. Eat some food and take a nap. And I won't let you leave till you do. Um, 
And she is so committed to the Lord's prophet that she moves, she's so moved and she moves her husband to build this room on top of her house just for him to stay, right? Now that's, that's great hospitality. Elisha wants to reward her for this. Um, but what do you do for the woman who, who literally has everything, right? Um, it turns out the one thing that she doesn't have is a son. And so, and this is important, not at her request, not even with her asking, Elisha promises her a son in about a year. And it's very, very interesting the way Elisha puts it in verse 16. At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. That exact phrase, at this season, about this time next year, occurs exactly one other time in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 18 with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, of course, being being very old, being promised uh, uh, generations upon generations like the sand of the sea and the stars in the heaven, innumerable how many descendants he would have. And he's 100 years old and has no kid yet. An incredible test of faith. And God promises to Abraham and Sarah at this Um, At this time, next year, you will have a son. And so despite their unbelief and despite their doubt, God proves that he can do anything. But this also, once you start thinking about promises like this, kind of unlocks an an entire group of people in the Bible, an entire motif, really, because Isaac, that promised son, right, he marries Rebecca and what do you know about Rebecca? She was also barren for a time. They get promised a son, and they give birth to um, Jacob. Jacob marries a couple women, uh, the most important one being Rachel, who is also barren. God opens her womb and gives her Joseph. Uh, Manoah and his wife give birth to Samson. Hannah eventually gives birth to Samuel. Elizabeth Fast forward to the New Testament, gives birth to John the Baptist. All of these women barren, and God showing his great power in life and in death for each and every one of these women. But there's something unique about the Shunammite son. Because what's different about all those other people and the Shunammite son? Well, you know all those other children's names, don't you? You've heard the Bible stories. You've heard them repeated. You don't know the Shunammite son's name. Uh, He's not one of the great Bible stories that we tell often, right? All those other sons, they were were saving the line of Israel because they were the last one left. Or they they grew up to be a, a great leader and a deliverer for God's people, pointing to Jesus Christ but not the Shunammite son. He's completely, uh, in a sense, completely unremarkable in every way. And so to quote one writer, the Lord here is showing that he doesn't need a grand redemptive historical function to provide a great and a good gift. He is just kind. He is compassionate and he loves to give his children gifts. 
He loves to open the womb of the barren woman and give them a child. First Timothy chapter six, right at the end of that letter, letter, Paul says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Um, and that's everything, every good gift that you can possibly think of. James goes on to say, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And everything, a few of my favorite things, uh, a coffee, good coffee, sports, a nice sunset, uh, a great marriage, any and every one of these things are good gifts that we are meant not just to have, but to enjoy because they come from a good giver. They come from a great God who pours out his blessings upon us. Uh, The Belgic Confession of Faith, right at the very beginning, Article Chapter 1, one of the uh, confessions of faith for the kind of the Dutch Reformed Church calls God the overflowing fountain of all good. He's not just sometimes good. It's not every once in a while. He's overflowing with his gifts. Uh, And so all the more, we need to beware the sin of discontentment. We need to beware the sin of grumbling and envy and bitterness. Uh, Ralph Davis, uh, another commentator, says, the only only the gospel of the serpent makes God stingy. Do you remember that? That's what the serpent did in the Garden of Eden with God and with Adam and Eve. He said, did God really say you couldn't eat of anything in the garden? That's not what God said. He was trying to make them think that God was holding everything back from them. He said, he knows you're going to be like him when you eat this tree, and he's holding that back from you. Look what he is keeping from you. God does not hold back. He is not stingy. He is good, and he loves giving good gifts. But all of those gifts do not terminate with your enjoyment. And that's another important thing to remember. He gives good gifts down to us. It's supposed to loop back around and, uh, and result in praise and glory for him. We're supposed to to recognize that giver. We're supposed to thank him and praise him for every good thing he gives us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. Um, And so the Lord has, has given this great son to the Shunammite, but the Shunammite woman's life takes, takes a very unexpected twist. Uh, So the story jumps jumps forward a year, and then it jumps forward about maybe 10 years, 8 to 10 years. Um, We don't really know. But 10 years later, she's she's relished her time with her son. And one day, the son goes out into the field with his father. He falls ill, and he dies before lunchtime. Now, this is a woman, remember, who, who had everything. And the one thing she didn't have, Elisha, and God gave it to her. Um, She says, even when Elisha asks her what he can give her, I dwell among my own people. She says, everything I need, I've either got or or my community's got. They're going to help me. Um, I've got the church around me. There's nothing I need. 
She was absolutely, decidedly not vulnerable and needy like the widow from our previous story. But God makes her needy and vulnerable. She becomes absolutely desperate when God rips away her greatest treasure in life. And again, this is how God usually has to work with his stubborn and stiff-necked people to show them that, that he is good. Because we can say that we believe in God's providence. We can quote the catechism. We can quote the Bible verses. We can sing, blessed be your name. But you don't really believe it until you live it. The Shunammite woman had to live it. And so even when the, the eight-year-old son gets diagnosed with, with lymphoma, even when the high school senior crashes their car and dies on prom night, I know, I know Lawrence has said it a number of times, and I'll say it too, that's a God thing too. Even those very, very hard providences. It's not just the good. It all comes from God. The Shunammite knew but had to live that experience. The God who opens the womb has the right to demand the life that comes from it. Um, She confessed, but she had to live. Do do you even notice... um, When she's speaking to Elisha in verse 16, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. And then up again in verse um, later in verse 28, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? She's she's not in the situation where she's like Sarah, laughing behind the the tent wall at what a ridiculous notion this could possibly be. Now, her words convey the idea more along the lines of, why would you give me false hope? Why would you do this? It was more like she had the the knot in her stomach, that she knew she was about to get what she really wanted, but she still wasn't sure it was really going to happen. Maybe in the back of her mind, she thought something bad was going to happen, and it wasn't actually going to turn out good. Um, She really accuses Elisha here. She is bitter. How dare you give me a son just to rip him away? You knew how much I was going to love that boy. Our world cannot revolve around the gifts that God gives us. It has to revolve around God himself. Um, and even those good gifts can become a big, big problem when that, that one treasure takes too much control of our heart and we cannot let it go. Um, the pastor at the, the church in Georgia last Sunday quoted the, the kid's catechism in his sermon, and I figured that's a good thing to do, so I'm going to do it too. Uh, so children, if you have learned the kid's catechism, question number one, who made you? God, yes. All right. Question number two. Wait. 
Uh, what else did God make? Yes, land. Land and water and birds and the skies and everything. God made all things. The, hard, the hardest one yet, number three, why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. He did not make them for you. And he did not make them for me. He made them for his own glory. Because God is at the center of the universe. And if we're honest, most times it's God and us at the center of our universes at best. So as long as God is getting praise and I'm also getting the things that I want, we're all good. That's not how the universe works. It all revolves around God. So again, like I said earlier, all of those good gifts, they have to loop back up to give God the praise and the glory. And we have to hold even those very, very good gifts loosely. We have to hold them with open hands. Whether that's our children, our parents, our house, our clothes, our toys, a spouse, friends, even our very well-planned-out schedules, our own brains, our minds, we hold them loosely. Because God can take them away at any moment, and it's still for his glory. And if we are revolving our whole life around God's glory, we can withstand those things being taken away. So, again, I put it, I put it in our prayer request that I sent out two weeks ago, that above all, no matter what happens, even if, well, this is what I meant, even if we fail our test, God would be glorified. Uh, and of course, God took that uh, and again, whacked me over the head with it. Um, that's not what I thought. I meant the hard things were going to be and that I had to glor- glorify God anyway. Uh, but he found a new way to teach me that lesson. He found a new way to teach Nate that lesson as well. And it was difficult. I wish we could say we responded as well as the Shunammite woman. Um, but we did not. It is tough. Um, Jeff, Jeff mentioned it when he gave his update, but there's just so much brokenness we saw in Georgia. And we split up to a bunch of different job sites. And uh, the crew that I was on um, was a retired woman who had, whose 25-year-old daughter had died of kidney failure. It just makes no sense. Uh, one of the other places uh, that we went, there was a woman who, um, uh, who, her husband just up and left her out of nowhere, which is bad enough in itself, but literally tore out her entire kitchen and burned it all so that her home was not livable enough for her children to live there and for her to have custody. That's not just evil, that is cruel. What do you tell these people? What are we going to do in four days there to help them heal? We, I mean, someone else on our trip said it better than me, but we, can give them, we could give them literally everything. We could fix up their homes in every way imaginable, but that's not going to do it. They're still spiritually broken and need something greater. 
They need to know God's providence, his glory, his goodness. Uh, there's really, there's another way actually in this text in which God takes away from these people. Uh, do you notice how weak Elisha seems here? Everything we have seen so far, this is so not in line with what Elisha's done. He's parted the Jordan River in two. He has healed deadly water. He's brought bears out of the forest to kill 42 boys. He's predicted a flood and brought it about. He's predicted a great military victory and brought it about. He's made oil flow endlessly for another widow. He promised a barren woman a son and she gave birth. And when she comes to him again 10 years later, he is absolutely powerless. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know why she's upset. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He sends even his staff with Gehazi to go do the job and raise him from the dead, and the staff can't do it. He's got to lay face down on this this boy twice before he finally is raised to life. He's very limited in his knowledge, and he is very limited in his power. Right? Elisha doesn't just get to wave his hands and say abracadabra. Elisha as well is made weak. And God makes all of us to be needy, dependent children on him. Um, it's actually, it's quite fascinating when the, the Shunammite woman comes back to Elisha she clings to him a second time. She clings to his feet again and will not let go. And what, what does Gehazi do? He tries to push her away. Right? It sounds a lot like when the, um, the parents brought their children to Jesus, right? And the disciples were shooing them away because, you know, what are children to Jesus? He's got bigger, better things to do. Sounds an awful lot like that. Um, so this Shunammite woman and we are meant to be dependent on him for all things. So beware, again, if, if we beware the sin of discontentment earlier, beware turning into the person who never needs a thing. Beware being the person who won't take help, who doesn't need prayer, because there's only one all-sufficient person, and it is not you, and it is not me. It's our God. The only thing Elisha and the Shunammite can do is turn to God in prayer and cling to him. So what do you say about God when you are needy? Where do you go when you need something? Will you still trust and pray and worship God when he rips that greatest treasure out of your life? You might not know until it happens. Uh, God, of course, knows, but we have to learn that lesson that God is worthy of our worship, not just when we see the sun, but when the clouds hide his face too. So when those things do get taken away, we go to him immediately in prayer. We tell our own souls, we tell our own selves, just like the psalmist Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. You have to preach to yourself and tell yourself that he is still worthy. Give your anxieties to God 
Ignore the lies of Satan telling you that God is stingy and you bless him anyway. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. But God does end up giving the Shunammite woman her son back, right? The Lord gives again. So when Gehazi's Gehazi's, um, work does not work, Elisha follows. He performs this, this kind of bizarre ritual that just, it looks weird just from a visual perspective. And it looks like kind of magical or something weird is going on, but um, it's, just, it's just simply the means that, uh, that God is using in the moment. And the son is raised to life again. Someone else, again, someone else wrote that a sneeze has never sounded so healthy. But why does God put this woman through this ordeal? He gives her a son, takes him away, and then gives him right back. Uh, It all comes down to verse 37. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. He does all of this to evoke this this worship response from this woman. She's not disillusioned. She's not bitter. She's done accusing God. She falls down in worship which is exactly what she's been doing the whole time, serving, praying, going to God. Everything is done, uh, excuse me, everything that is done in us and to us is that we would learn to glorify God. But if I just tell you to praise God anyway, or if Scripture just told you to praise God anyway, wouldn't that just be kind of a really heavy burden and a heavy command to follow. So what would ancient Israel have taken away from this story? Probably that God can deliver his people even from death. Now, resurrection is a thing. It's very, it sounds normal to people like us, right? Because we grew up in church. We grew up hearing about it. Um, We think it's all over the Bible. Uh, it is all over the Bible, just maybe not as much as you think, actually. Because there are, there are actually only 10 instances of resurrection in, the, in this entire book, which might be fewer than you had thought. Uh, Elisha with the Shunammite woman is just the second one. It's the second one out of those 10. And so what ancient Israel would take away and what we ought to take away too is that God raises and delivers his people even from the dead. But there's a little more to it. And this is where we go to Luke chapter 7. And especially that second story in Luke 7 with the widow um, who lost her son in the city of Nain. Nain and Shunem are two cities on opposite sides of a big hill, maybe about three miles apart. And so going from probably here to about the laundry in downtown Fenton, very, very close. They may have remembered this story in the city of Nain. And how much greater does Jesus look in his story than Elisha? 
All right, I've already mentioned, Elisha is so intentionally weak. He is able to acknowledge the Shunammite woman's distress and her bitterness. He knows that it's happening, but he doesn't know what's going on. Jesus commands the widow at the funeral, do not weep. And that's a ridiculous statement for him to say, unless he can do something about the weeping. Elisha can only pray to God to raise the son to life, but Jesus speaks to the corpse and says, get up. And if you pay attention to to the context well of of Luke chapter 7, just the previous story was, was Jesus saving a centurion servant just from the brink of death. And so when we get to Nain, the author is telling us, can Jesus merely keep you from dying? Or can he reach into the grave and pull you out? Jesus enters the grave conquers death, and plunders all of its prey. He is the God both of the living and the dead. And it is Christ and Christ alone who does that. Not even the grave separates you from Christ. You will not lay in the grave forever. Our future, This is the Belgic Confession of Faith again. Our future is to be crowned with honor, with all our tears wiped away, and we will possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. That's your future. A possession that you've never, no human being's been able to conceive of before. That's the possession even that we hold Right now, death has no dominion and evil does not win, as cruel as it seems. And so it would be a very heavy command to just say, praise God anyway, but we praise him because we know that that future is sure and we will be glorified with him. There is something unimaginably greater than this life with all tears wiped away. No matter how strong and intimidating the evil seems, God is the ruler yet, and he is still good. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. Uh, I want to close with um, a children's book, actually. Now, I listened to a podcast with the author of this book, Johnny Gibson, where he uh, he told the story about I think having, I can't remember, four or five-year-old son, something like that. And his wife was 37, 38 weeks pregnant, and they lost their baby. Uh, Now, I thought that story inspired him to write this children's book. Uh, It did. Turns out that was also the content of this children's story book. So this book now sits in a special place, sort of away from the rest of the books, because it's a little hard to read through, (laughs) especially for a a three-year-old. Uh, We're not really sure how to read it to him yet. Um, But the title of this book is The Moon is Always Round. Um, And you may have heard this metaphor before. The idea that 
when you look at the moon up at nights, sometimes you see the full moon, right? It's glowing bright. You see the whole thing. It lights up to a certain extent, even the night. Sometimes it's a little bit smaller, but you can still see most of it. Sometimes it's a sliver. Sometimes you can't see any of it. The moon is always still there. And the moon is still round, even though you can't see it all. It's the same with the overflowing fountain of all good, our God. Sometimes you're basking in the light of his goodness. Sometimes it's just a sliver. Sometimes you see nothing at all. But our God is still good. The moon is still round. And someday we'll get to see it. We get to see him in all of that glory. But until then, we repeat over and over again, telling our own hearts and nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And nothing ever will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word which instructs us. Some texts we, um, we relish, we memorize, we, we say over and over again, we love them, we sing them, and some are hard to receive. And we thank you for even the hard texts. We thank you even for the hard providences. Even for the times where we, we can't see your face, cannot see the sun. We don't see the moon, but we know you're still there and we know you're still good. Lord, we pray that you would, especially with those who are hurting, we pray that you would soothe them and comfort them with that message. Uh, We pray for uh, everybody else that this would be a, a truth that plants itself deep down in our hearts. And though we may not feel like we need it now. We pray that it would come back up uh, when we do need it. We're going to thank you and we praise you for all of your good gifts. Help us to believe, help us to remember that you are the overflowing fountain of all good at all times. And we pray this in Jesus' name.